Hi, I'm Dave Scott. I'm pastor of Crossway Community Church, and I want to welcome you. Crossway is a church simply committed to making disciples. We meet at 1501 Woodbury Road. It's off of Colonial and Fort Wayne in East Orlando. Come check us out. I look forward to meeting you. In, uh, John chapter 9, the story of Jesus healing the blind beggar as just another one of Jesus' miracles, right? Uh, and after a while, when Jesus is doing them, as you're going through the Gospels, they kind of become like, okay, you've seen one, you've seen them all, all right? You know, I've already been there and done that, I know that, check that box. But I want us to be not so fast about this passage, because there's more here to that. It is that, and John is definitely laying down the miracles that establish and that support uh, Jesus' identity as the Son of Man, as God. Jesus is divine. That's the big uh, argument that John is making, right? With the main point being that we would believe in him and live. Uh, He's not just doing this as an academic exercise. He's doing this for our benefit, that we would see who Jesus is and we see how that changes who we are and what through what he's done for us. And so we come to this uh, story and... uh, Jesus' disciples are going along, and they say, you know, who they see this man, and Jesus passes by this man who's blind. And the disciples see him, and they say, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, it's interesting that the disciples, the first thing when they see, when they see a blind man, the first thing they ask is, who sinned, right? Did they see his blindness? Did they see, was their immediate response to, to, to minister to him as, as a blind man, as someone who... Uh, was in need of resources as a beggar, someone who was poor? No. They ask a question. Why would they ask this question of who sent? Uh, it's because of the culture that they grew up in that taught them to ask that question, right? And of course, Jesus answers, well, it's neither one. It's that God's glory may be displayed. And of course, in the story, we see God's glory displayed through Christ. But not just through the miracle, but through the miracle that Jesus can forgive sins on the cross. Um, so, uh, but Jesus says, go to this man. He says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the pool of Siloam is very interesting because it's the pool that pilgrims would come to before they went to the temple to have ceremonial washing and cleansing before they would go to make their, uh, their sacrifices in the, test, in, in the temple. And so uh, Jesus here tells this man to be washed. And so he did, and he came back seeing. And his neighbors say, well, is this the man who used to sit and beg? And some people say, well, it is him. And then others say, no, it just looks like him. And the man says, no, it's me. It really is me, <laughs> right? And, uh, uh, and they say, well, how are your eyes open? And he said, well, just Jesus made some mud, this man named Jesus, and he put it on my eyes. And they said, where is this man? He said, I don't know. So what do his neighbors do? They take him to the Pharisees. Now, why would you take someone who's just had a miracle who's seeing, why would you take them to the Pharisees? they got to get the special stamp, right, that this man's okay, that the Pharisees say, oh, yeah, that was about God. That's interesting that even the neighbors have this built-in sense of, of uh, hey, we got to make sure this is kosher, right, uh, that this was done all in the up and up. So they take it to the religious authorities. And the Pharisees ask him, how did you get your sight back? And he tells them what happened. And they said, oh, that man can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Because Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath, right? 
They've got their list of rules, things you can and can't do on Sunday. You can't mow your lawn on Sunday. Don't do that. That, should, that proves you're not a religious person. You don't really love God. Um, and, of course, Jesus is the one who made the Sunday. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, they come with the rules to try to define what is Sabbath-keeping and what is not. Um, but in trying to strain out a gnat, they uh, don't see that they've got... Uh, a, a beam in their own eye, um, and uh, and so uh, they, they, this guy they says, uh, you know, who do you say? What do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said he's a prophet. Well, they don't like that, right? Um, and uh, so they uh, they take him to his parents, and they say, is, you know, is this your son? Yes. Was this? Is this, was he blind from birth? Yes. Um, and they say, well, you know. Uh, how did this happen? They say, well, he's of age, ask him. They're afraid of the religious authorities, right? They throw their own kid under the bus. If he's going to get in trouble, it's him, not us. That's what they do. And, uh, but, um, uh, uh, but they say, oh, we, you know, they come to this man again. They say a second time, you need to give glory to God. Say that Jesus is a sinner, right? All in the name of glory of God, Right? What are they doing? They're shaming, they're judging. In God's name, they put themselves in God's place. And he says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I do know I was blind and now I see. And they said, well, how did you open, how did he open your eyes? They ask him again. He said, I've already told you and you wouldn't listen. Do you want to you hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? But that really, that really ticks them off, right? <laughs> and he says that. And they say, oh, we're the, disciple of, we're the disciples of Moses, um, right? And, uh, uh, you know, it's so easy for us to say that, oh, I'm the, disciples, I'm the disciples of the King James Bible. I read in the King James Bible. Oh, I'm EV free. I'm, I'm an honor denominational. Oh, I'm a disciple. I'm a Presbyterian disciple, right? We all have these labels we like to put on ourselves. Oh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't ordain women. Oh, we ordain women, you know. Well, we have a liturgical service. Oh, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. We, we, all these things, they're not good or bad things, but we can put value in them to think that they somehow make us better, the things that make us different from one another. And of course, what really matters is our heart, right? How, what, where is our heart at and what is God doing with our heart? And I'm stepping on my own toes in case you didn't notice that with yours. So I'm just trying to trying to say how this applies to us, that we can do this exact same thing. And, uh, uh, and so the man you know, goes on and says that you know, this is what God did. This is what Jesus did. And they say, well, you're born in utter sin. Once again, they're con condemning him. They're shaming this man again that he would say that Jesus was from God. And uh, so, um, uh, and then he comes before Jesus and Jesus heard this he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, well, who is that? Jesus said, well, it's, it's the, I'm the one who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. He believes. Well, this is an interesting chapter, and one of the things I want you to see here that's operating here is not just the miracle of blindness, physical blindness, but spiritual blindness that's going on, right? Who is the one who's really blind here? The Pharisees, right? Right? The ones who are religious, the ones who are judging, they're the ones who are blind. Who's the one who really sees? Jesus is the one who really sees. He's the only one who sees right into our heart to know exactly what's going on in each of these situations. 
And it's interesting, the disciples ask, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? All the time, you know, we're looking at people, we're judging them. Oh, you know, how, how did that happen to them, right? And of course, this is, in, our, in today's language, uh, saying this about a blind person would be called ableism. If you don't know what ableism is, it means that the able-bodied are more, more morally superior, right? Those with disabilities are morally defective. We even have that same view today. We look down on, on those who have physical challenges. In many cultures, you know, those who uh, have uh, physical challenges, and, and uh, uh, they'll be shunned. They'll be even kept in private in, in many places, and, not, and, 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 and many of them never even leave the home because of this in some cultures. But also here is, is a legalism that's operating, saying that Able-bodiedness means spiritual ability. Physical ability means spiritual ability. I'm, you know, thinking that I'm a better person, that somehow my physical attributes somehow credit to my account. And there's a self-righteousness here, right, that says that I'm spiritually superior. And the story shows, in fact, that this is what they think is their spiritual ability is their spiritual disability. They are the ones who are spiritually handicapped, the ones that are looking down their nose. Um, and so uh, uh, that is interesting to look at this because the religious are demeaning this man because of their lack of sight. And shame is the, is the tool that they are using against him. And it's the same tool that the Pharisees use against Jesus. They're trying to shame him. You know, we're always asking this question, uh, you know, do those people measure up? Why don't they measure up? Do I measure up? This is how shame operates. Why isn't that person married over there, right? What's wrong with him or her? Uh, why don't they have children? Why did their kids go bad? Why did their kids do that? Why is that person divorced? You know, it's not up for us to judge other people's lives. We don't know the context of their life, right? We weren't there. God hasn't made us the judge, but it's so easy for us to do that, right? All of us judge one another. We do. It's a part of our sin, right? We like to cluck our tongues. We want to judge the spirituality of others. Uh, and why are we doing that? Why are we comparing other people? Because if I can find someone who's a little bit lower than me, then that kind of lifts me up, right? Makes me feel better about my, well, I'm not like that. At least I'm, I'm not that bad, right? That's what we say. That's what we feel. That's what's going on here. And Jesus calls this spiritual blindness. The inability to see myself as I really am, Right? It's interesting here that this, this beggar's eyes are progressively open. I don't know if you noticed that in the text spiritually. He first starts out in verse 8. He simply calls Jesus the man called Jesus. But in verse 17, he calls him a prophet. Finally, in verse 33, he says that he is a man from God. You see how God began to open his eyes more and more spiritually to understand who Jesus is. And of course, this reaffirms this theme in John of, of realizing the true identity of Jesus as God. And so, really, this is about our spiritual eyes. Um, but, uh, but it's about, you know, specifically, what is Jesus' healing here is not just physical blindness, but it's the blindness of shame. What is shame? What is shame? This is what they're casting on, this, on this, uh, this beggar. It's a painful feeling of humiliation. All of us know it, right? It's distress. 
It's caused by this consciousness that I have that I'm falling short of some perceived social norm. Um, how many of y'all ever had a, something happen to you, kind of one of those life most embarrassing moments where you want to crawl under the table? <laughs> you want to crawl on the table? You want to go in a hole? Come on. I'm, I, mean, I know the rest of y'all have had those. All right, yeah, all right. We're all, we can all, we've all had that, right? We've all had things happen like, oh my goodness, I just, just let me out of here. I just, I just got to get out of this situation, <laughs> right? That's this feeling of shame. Um, and uh, it's different than guilt. Um, it can be related to guilt. Uh, guilt is a burden conscious for what we've done. And the Holy Spirit does convict us of guilt. But who's the author of shame? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's our enemy. Satan is the author of shame. Because shame is actually a negative sense of me as a person. You get that? It's not what I do, but shame attacks my identity. It actually attacks my person. It has to do with how you feel about yourself, your self-esteem, your identity. Shame is degradation. It's actually an assault against the creation of God, and that's why it comes from Satan himself. So when they're looking down at this man because he's blind, they're attacking the image of God in him. So, but notice that shame is social. It's relational, right? It's actually a social construct. Uh, it's, it's something we learn in our families and in our cultures, the things that we should do, the things that are shameful to do, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, this voice of shame, we actually learn uh, in uh, either... In, in, there's, there's whole cultures in the world that are shame-based culture, even though our culture wouldn't be classified by sociologists or anthropologists as a shame-based culture. Shame definitely functions in our culture. Um, it just functions in a different way than it would in others. But we learn this through our parents, right? We, they, 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 all of us have been shamed by our parents at one time or other, and if we're parents, we've probably done that with our kids, if we were honest. But um, notice that shame almost always hangs on a religious or a moral construct. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a ranking system. It's a way to grade ourselves, right? And inevitably, we try to make that credit to our account spiritually, to grade ourselves spiritually. It's based on comparison. Um, and, uh, um, you know, in order, as I was saying, in order to look uh, up at myself, I have to look down at others. You know, and this is what our today's cancel culture is all about, right? Uh, if you've noticed this, it's about shaming people for something they've said or done. How in the world could you have said that? Now, I would never have said anything like that, right? Because I'm perfect. Um, and then, and so you must be disqualified. You can't do this anymore. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of a different use of the scarlet letter. Those of y'all who know about the scarlet letter, the A for for adultery, right? But the letters changed, right? It's those who violate certain standards that are that are that are um, that are now shamed. Uh, so this is very active in our culture today. Um, but this has been is becoming increasingly even systematized in China, communist China. They actually have a whole numbering system. You know, like we have our credit score. Uh, they have a social credit score. It's actually a number that they keep track of on a computer. It's associated with your ID number, and it, it determines whether they're going to give you a loan at the bank or not. How you do, what, how you do socially with, based upon what they think communists, communists say a good person should do, a good communist should do. 
So um, here in the West now, in our, in, our, in our economy, we have what's called CEI. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called the Corporate Equity Index. It's how corporations are scored based upon how they, how they measure up against certain values. Um, it's interesting because a lot of this comes from an, the irreligious part of our cultures. Uh, and, and yet this liberal, you could call it liberal virtual, virtue signaling, um, in our culture, but it's actually puritanical. When we use the word puritanical, what do we mean by that? Someone who tries to enforce their morals through law, right? That's the pure. But but that's what's happening when we say, oh, this, you know, this company over here, you know, they're not they're not this enough. They're not that enough. It's the same thing. We've got a set of morals, a set of virtues that we're measuring by. But it, I'm going to put it on shoe on the other foot. It, it occurs in conservative political circles as well, right? Um, We've got candidates who won't criticize another candidate because they're afraid of violating some voter sensibilities. Um, they won't say that, that, you know, a spade is a spade. And so they, what do they do? They're playing a social game um, uh, based upon what they think is, is uh, politically in or not. Um, but, you know, um, you know who shames us the most? We do. You're right, Gladys. It's ourselves. We shame ourselves. We are our own worst shamers. Self-contempt or self-shame is involved with shame. And many of you have struggled with self-hatred or have these dialogues of inner contempt. Um, and you are your own worst enemy. You know, as a self-perfectionist, I can cop to that, that I struggle with that as well. Um, but this is interesting because it's actually a form of inverted pride. And I'm talking to you about my own sin here, so let me explain to you how I see it. Inverted pride is my desire for you to think better of me, but I know I fall short of that, right? And so I feel bad about myself instead. Feeling bad about myself is really the flip side of me wanting to have felt better about myself if I just would measure up more. Um, so it's self-hatred is, is another form of pride, and it's different than the way that God sees us. You know, shame says that you and I are less than. You're less than. I'm less than. That person over there is less than. It says you don't qualify. You're disqualified, that you are not enough. Um, Brene Brown, I don't know if you've read any of her. She's got a great book called Daring Greatly. She says, we live in a culture of not enough. Our culture is not enough, Right? Shame says we're not enough. We're not smart enough. Our grades aren't good enough. We're not articulate enough. We're not spiritual enough. Women, you're not beautiful enough. You're not good enough moms. Men, you don't have what it takes. You don't measure up. You're not athletic enough. You're not successful enough. You're not wealthy enough, right? We're not enough. My son Jonathan is teaching Bible to seventh graders in Atlanta. He just started this year, and they did a a lesson on worry, and he asked his seventh graders, what do you worry about? You know what seventh graders are worried about? Their grades. He said, all of them are worried about their grades. He said, Dad, none of these grades that they're getting will be based on college, but they've heard from their siblings in high school. They know if you get anything less than an A, right, your future is doomed. He said, if somebody gets a B, they feel like their future is now doomed because they fall short. They can't give each other. And at school, they actually can't give grades lower than a B. Um, they, because of this, because the administration doesn't want parents to come in, say, how in the world could you give my child a B? You know, because they know that scholarships are based upon this, getting into college is based upon this, and, you're, and then getting a good job. And getting, we think all of this comes down to one paper that I'm going to 
get a beyond when I'm in seventh grade. You see this system of shame that we have of falling short, fear of falling short. Um, and Donna disciples high school and college women full time. All the women that she works with in high school and college deal with anxiety. Many of them are in counseling for anxiety. A lot of them are on medication for anxiety. They fear falling short of what a, our culture says that a woman should be. So this message has gotten ingrained in us. Where does it come from? In Genesis chapter 3, when Eve eats the apple, she gives it to Adam. Immediately says, right, that they uh, were, they, after they sinned, they, became, they knew they were naked and they were ashamed, right? Shame is different than guilt because the one who's shaming them there is Satan. We know God is actually the author of grace. He's the one who's, who, who killed an uh, animal to cover their nakedness, which is a foreshadowing of the cross, of a sacrifice. God was going to pay the price for what they did. He wasn't the one who's accusing them. He's the one who's pouring grace on them, who has a, his, has a plan of redemption for them. But our enemy, Satan, he's the one who wanted to separate us from God. He's the one who wanted Adam and Eve to hide, right, to break the fellowship between God and man. And so, when we hear these voices of shame, these voices of accusation, this is the enemy trying to destroy us, trying to tear us down. Shame actually comes from the lower part of your brain. Um, it actually bypasses your rational faculties. The feeling of shame actually comes faster than you can actually rationally think. Uh, there's a whole uh, set of uh, uh, scientific study called uh, interpersonal neurobiology, and, and they've mapped this out, how this works through neurons in our brain. So when I do something and I feel ashamed, it's actually the lower part of my brain, it comes as a chemical, then I have to figure out what am I going to do with that. Even dogs feel this. Have you all seen your dog be ashamed? <laughs> ate something? <laughs> the other night, we had David and Ida over on Monday night, and I, and I grilled out steaks for them. And I, before they got there, I looked on the counter, and there was one fewer steaks than should have been there. <laughs> and it was a London, it was, it, was a, it was a New York strip we got on sale at Winn-Dixie. And, uh, and I looked around, Maple was nowhere to be seen. And she was gone. She was in hiding. She's my son's dog that we've been keeping. She's a blue healer. Well, she'd gotten the steak, and she hide. She hid. She knew she had done something. Even though she doesn't, she's not a sentient being, uh, she still has the primordial instincts, and we do too. Shame comes like an instinct. It's just something that will happen, and we know, have to know what to do about it. And so, what is it that we do about it? If Satan is the author of shame, what is the answer? What is the answer? What is the antidote? Well, prayer is one of them, but shame is this feeling of being seen and being embarrassed, right? The antidote is to be seen and known and to be loved, right? It's the operative ac ac accusation. It's validation. It's forgiveness. What did Jesus say about all of our deficiencies? He spits and he makes mud, right? Others have spit contempt. Jesus spit is an act of love. He doesn't ridicule or, and, 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 and spew out hatred and prejudice and belittlement. He says, yes, he said, well, he'll say we're blind, but he says, you know, you're blind because you don't see how you really are, which, who you are made to be, how I see you. And he takes dirt that we thought sullied us, and he makes it a healing balm. He puts mud on our eyes, and he says to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. 
come to the cross where your sins, the areas where you truly do fall short, have been paid for. The cross cancels condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Shame is this weight of others accusing us or feeling ashamed in the light of others. And shame is this voice of accusation that assaults our value. But it was defeated by the cross. The verdict on you has already been given by Christ. And it's that you are forgiven. You are loved. You are favored by God. His everlasting loving kindness. Again and again it says it's everlasting. His loving kindness is new, is new every morning. and It lasts forever. This is what God has said about you. I may constantly feel not enough, but guess what? Jesus is enough. What is the answer to my deficiency? It is his sufficiency, right? His sufficiency. Uh, In Daring Greatly, Brene Brown wrote, that to love ourselves and support each other in this process of becoming real is perhaps the greatest single act of daring greatly. What she's saying is, is that when I can be real in front of you, when I can actually show my deficiency and you love me, that helps heal me, right? We're confessional. We just did a, a corporate confession. We confess how we fall short. But we don't leave it there. It's not there to shame us. It's there so we can be healed, so we can speak truth. Say, no, you're a deeply loved daughter. No, you're a deeply loved son of the Most High God. To speak the truth back to each other. And that's what Jesus did. Through the cross, he bought the right to give us unconditional love and unconditional support, allowing us to be fully known and yet fully loved. Right? And so that's what the church is here. We're a confessional community. And that's why it's important for us not just to meet here on Sunday morning, because you can come in here, you can hear a sermon, you can even sing songs and walk out and not feel known. Feel like nobody really knows you, right? And when you don't feel known, you can't experience the love that, that God gave us as a circle to point each other back to him so that you can share the truth of who you are. And I can say, you are loved, Right? You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God said over you, you are very well. This is very good creation. This is why we need to get in smaller circles of community and Bible studies so that we can uh, have this kind of interaction and see each other's eyes, not see contempt that we fear, right? Instead, to feel affirmation and love and acceptance as the Holy Spirit pours out his love from me to you and from you to me. And that's why that is really critical Jesus gives us the gift of being seen, of being known exactly how we are, and yet being fully loved. Jesus didn't see this man and ask who sinned, right? He didn't. He saw someone that he could touch and lift up. Someone whose life, in fact, because even they were deficient, could glorify God. God can glorify himself through your deficiencies. Did you know that? If you'll just turn them over to him. Jesus has answered shame. Whatever questions it is you carry, and I know we all do. I do, you do, we all have it. We all have insecurities. We all have holes in our soul. Jesus has answered those. He is the answer to those. He's the one who wants to fill you. Jesus 
looks at you and sees you right now and me naked as we really are, everything we've ever done. He sees it all. And you know what he says of you and me? I love you. I accept you. I want to adopt you as my child. That's what Jesus says. And that's why at the end, he invited this man to know him in a spiritual way, to know him as the son of God. Jesus revealed to this person who he was. That's what he wants to do to you and to me. God, we thank you so much that you haven't left us where we were. <laughs> you brought us so far. Lord, everybody who's here has a story that brought, what brought them here today and over the years, how they got to the place that they are. But God, you also love us so much you're not going to leave us where we are. Thank goodness we aren't where we were, but thank goodness we are that where we will one day be when you're finished with us. When you promise, as you do in Philippians 1, 9, to complete the process that you've begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, it's all for your glory. It's not to build up ourselves to finally prove our worth. Lord, you proved our worth on the cross when you gave your son, your only begotten son, your pure sinless son on our behalf to show us how much that you loved us, that we would not perish, but that if we would believe in him, we would have eternal life. Amen. Thanks for joining us today and listening to this message from Crossway Community Church. Once again, we meet at 1045 on Sunday mornings at 1501 Woodbury Road, which is just off Colonial and 408 in East Orlando. Come check us out. I'll see you then.